Hey up, how's it going? Cornelius is here. Thanks a lot for tuning in to the Gypsy Jazz Hangouts podcast. If you've been enjoying the podcasts, I would like to ask you very nicely to go to our Facebook page, give us a like. Um, I think we've got an Instagram. I mean, I've got an Instagram page. It's just Cornelius Corkery, but you can give that a follow if you want. That'd be fun. Uh, we've got a YouTube page. Uh, where we filmed all these all these episodes, so you can watch them if if you really want to. Uh, go there, give us a subscribe to the channel. That'd be that'd be a big help. And this episode, we were talking with Michael Dregney. Now, Michael is a very prolific author. He's done loads of books and loads of different things, um, but he's also written a biography of Django Reinhardt, and he's written other books about gypsy jazz as well. And I called him up on Skype, and uh, we talk about. Django's life pretty much from start to finish, covering all the different eras of when he was in Paris under the Nazi occupation to his US tour with Duke Ellington uh, and everything in between. Uh, we talk a bit about uh, Michael and how he got into writing these books and, and all the work that's gone into it. And I also asked Michael what his favourite Django tunes are and we sit down we have a listen to them so there's a few Django recordings on this podcast as well that are really fun to listen to um, really fun chat really nice bloke look forward to meeting him in real life at some point uh, but yeah I really hope you enjoy the podcast like I say share it with all your mates get us on the social media it's a really big help and tune in for the next one but until then here we go cheers how's it going? Uh, going okay. Hey, good man. Yeah. How are you? Uh, just fine, thank you. Good stuff. Shit, man, you've got a hell of a setup back there. Uh, basement full of junk. Yeah, the man cave. Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Cool, man. Well, yeah, once again, thanks a million for doing this. It's a uh, really, it's... Talk about Django, obviously. <laughs> Uh, it's super cool. I'm a really big fan of the books, um, and yeah, it's really great. I mean, um, obviously, you've written the. I've got them here, so I'm just going to show them off very quickly. <laughs> obviously, you've written this one. This is kind of the proper biography of Django from start to finish, and then which is fantastic. And then there's this one as well, which is kind of more about your journey, like meeting all these people in Europe and stuff. This is such a fun read. This one is so good. And then this one, which is a, a real favorite of mine too, partly because it's got pictures sure. so it helps me out a bit, you know, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. is the illustrated one. It's so nice. And finding all this amazing old vintage stuff, like mm. this must have taken forever to put together. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. maybe not. I don't know. It did. I mean, you know, the whole thing, are we, are we recording now? Yeah, or? we're rolling. Yeah, we're oh, rolling. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, the whole the whole getting started on the whole thing. I was really came at it just for more of as a music fan and uh, and a uh, struggling uh, guitarist <laughs> trying to learn. Join, to join the club, mate. Join the club. <laughs> yeah, right. And um, you know, and then I, I, people told me, "Oh, you gotta listen if you're into guitar music. You gotta listen to this Django Reinhardt." And so I tried to track down the music. And this was probably back in the '80s, and you know, the stuff. Was just a difficult to find. Sure, back. sure, sure. Um, you know, the third, uh, LPs were tough to find. Uh, about all you could find were were old seventy eights here and there that people would play for you. Mm. And I remember first listening to one of those, and someone's you know sets down the needle, and you just get this scratchy sound, and it's kind of weird, and you know you kind of can't make it out, and it sort of didn't impress me a lot at the time. Okay. Um, and it was only later listening to it that I was just like. Uh, on, on cleaner recordings that I was like, wow, this is really something interesting and different. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, from there you start collecting the recordings when CDs came out that made it all that much more easy to, to find. Then you start looking for the rare stuff, you know, the Django recordings that were bootlegged in the United States wow. during his yeah. tour. You start looking for all that weird stuff, and then you know you start finding the, the uh, memoir that uh, Charles Delaunay wrote, mm. and so it's kind of like a cautionary tale of obsession. How it just sort of keeps <laughs> going until I started working on the books. And yeah. doing the books, you know, as I as I went along, um, 
I did a lot of uh, hunting around, I mean, a lot of interviewing of people in Paris and, and other places in France in particular, but um, I, looking around in flea markets in France. And at that time, you know, it's kind of like the, the gypsy jazz revival hadn't started. And so stuff was still out and about in flea markets and record stores and so on. And, um, and eBay, you know, started having some of that stuff would pop up here and there. Mm, and so mm. the illustrated book kind of came together as I was searching out these um, images and so on that I basically used as documents to try to, to put together the sense of its history. So it, it kind of, in a weird way, that's a long way of telling, it kind of came together more easily than, than the biography. I, I suppose in a way you had already been making that book before you started making the book, right? Because you'd already been exactly yeah yeah um so something i really want to talk to you about um i kind of wanted to go through django's life kind of you know step by step a little bit and one thing i really want to know is we don't hear a great deal about django kind of pre-caravan fire i find uh sure. because the kind of the myth and legend of django was almost kind of born out of that fire you know so what was life like for django growing up in is it la zone was that what it was called where the yeah. Just outside yeah. of, of France, is that right? Outside of Paris, right. Outside the, of Paris, right. Kind of a ring around Paris, yeah. He was born in Belgium, is that right? Correct. He was born in Belgium in 1910 in uh, January. Um, it, it's from, from everything that's been told, his parents uh, traveled around in a caravan, um, and they moved between Italy, Belgium, France, Germany, and traveled around to small town uh, markets, flea markets and cities and so on. And they basically were entertainers. They right. put on a show. Uh, his mother was a dancer. His father um, could play many a musical instrument. Um, there's one story at one point that they had modified their little caravan to have a stage on the back of it. And they could, you know, had a, had a uh, curtain or something that could open right. up. And uh, at one point, supposedly, they, they even had a piano in the back of this, which must have made for crowded living. Yeah, sure, Never sure, mind sure. the weight of pulling it around for a, for a poor horse. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so they traveled around and they, and they put on shows um, at, these, at these small town market days. And uh, as part of that, they became kind of human jukeboxes. They could play any type of music. Um, they had to know all the tunes, I guess. Anything, you know, anything anyone requested, they would learn. Um, and so this is what Django grew up in. And, uh, you know, it sort of became natural that he's, he uh, became a musician as well to, to augment the family. Uh, mm. Story goes that he was first taught violin. Um, that was his first instrument. And it's something he, he fiddled around with his whole yeah. life. But um, um, <laughs> there are recordings of him playing uh, some violin as well. There is. Yeah, there is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was and, and he, pretty handy. They, but by the time they moved to, to Paris, he was he started learning a banjo, um, kind of in the days before guitars were... Was that like a kind of, was it like a six-string banjo, kind of a, a exactly. cross between a banjo and a guitar? Exactly. Yeah. And, so, you know, they're kind of little things. Uh, they kind of have a, a, a guitar-style neck with shorter, shorter uh, scale length. Uh, and he started learning to play that. And, you know, the great thing about a banjo is that they're loud and, and have that, that sharp tone so they can cut through a band. Yeah, especially. You know, in the days before, you know, Marshall Stacks, it was, uh, yeah, loudness. <laughs> was was, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thank God for so Marshall he, Stacks. He yeah. to play that and, and he starts playing this um, along with his brother. They'd go out and busk on the streets and, uh, uh, you know, bring money back home. What was the thing I heard? Him and his brother used to do, um, like, deal, like dealing in scrap metal and stuff. Is that right? And Django used to always say that... You're cutting up a little bit there. Sorry about that. Um, can you hear me now? Is that good? Yeah. And, yep. Uh, Django used to, and his brother used to go off uh, dealing, like, scrap metal and what have you. And even all through his life, all through his illustrious career, all through the highs of it, he used to really have great fondness of those days when he'd be with his yeah. brother just doing the old-fashioned kind of work. Yeah, it's a story I've heard, you know, that they'd, they'd be, you know, even when he was touring, they'd be on a train and all of a sudden they'd go by a, a town or something and they'd spot some great scrap metal out the window and kind of 
think back to the good old days. Of, yeah. I, I think yeah. they did, you know, about anything they could to, to make a living. His father, Django's father, supposedly could repair instruments. Um, there's uh, stories of uh, um, Django's mother taking the kids out into some of the uh, the leftover battlefields from World War One, and they would dig out um, shell casings, and they'd cut up the shell casings and make bracelets out of them to wow. sell. You know, so it's real, really uh, traveling and, and making a living any way they could. Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, Django, before his accident, and, you know, it's fairly well documented, the, the caravan with the paper flowers, the candle gets knocked over, and, and that happens. But even before the, the fire, he was kind of recognized as clearly a, a talent, and, and um, a special talent at that. And then, of course, he has to, it, took, it took him, he was in hospital after the fire for like a year, more than a year, is that right? 18 months or something like that, yeah. Right. Uh, and I, I don't know if he was in the hospital that whole time, and he was probably in a couple of different ones from the sounds of it. But, uh, you know, he's certainly recuperating. It seems a long time to be in the hospital for burns, mm. but I don't know for sure. Yeah. And, of course, you know, the determination the guy had, because, of course, I think they, the doctors were going to amputate his leg, and he was absolutely adamant, no way, and, and had to kind of then battle to save his leg and then battle to save his whole body. Because the burns, okay, the hand was bad, but the burns were all the way down his body, right? That's what they say, down the, that uh, what left side of his body, all the way down it. Um, and, and there's stories of him uh, from some of his bandmates in, you know, in the 1940s, uh, talking about being on tours with him, and, and he'd still have problems with the burn wounds, mm. uh, even you know, that much later in his life. Yeah, yeah, right, because they're kind of almost like open wounds all the time, right? They're never fully healed. Yeah. yeah. So the next bit I really want to know about is um, Django. He's grown up in this kind of rich uh, gypsy tradition. He's been a working musician all his life. But at some point, he stumbled upon some jazz music. And this kind of obviously changed the course of his life. What was that moment like? How did he first come across jazz? Well, I, my guess is, you know, I think the way Charles Delaunay told it in his memoir is he's down in, in the south of France and, a, and an acquaintance of his uh, plays some of the latest jazz records from America. And he hears Duke Ellington and Louis Armstrong, and he's just like, wow, this is, this is it. But there are other stories of him in Paris when he is playing um, his banjo in an accordion band playing what they call musette. Hmm. Uh, or some of the dance halls in Paris. And there are stories of American jazz musicians playing in some of the, um, the other dance halls and of Django going and listening to this music. So my guess is it was kind of a gradual thing that he heard over the years. And there's also talk, some of the accordionists who hired him, saying that Django would go off and listen to this jazz music and then he'd try to play some of these jazzier lines in this very traditional uh, accordion music and they kind of look at him like what is that stuff you're playing yeah uh, but I, I think I think Delaunay's story of him hearing these latest records of, of Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington that was probably kind of some sort of you know really a turning point of, of this is the latest the most modern jazz and what sort of year would that be do we think Oh, I can't remember off the top of my head. <laughs> Neither could I. That's why I asked you. <laughs> I've got, I've got it written down somewhere. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. Let me see. So because it's not too long after that, you have this wonderful kind of chance meeting. Again, it sounds like such a good story with, with Stefan Grappelli. They're backstage. Uh, Stefan's tuning up. Is that right? And uh, There's a... The story, I think first he, he goes to see, if I remember correctly, he goes to see Grappelli and he, Grappelli's playing in another band and he goes to watch him and uh, he comes back a couple nights to watch him and, and Grappelli, the way he told the story with lots of drama and theater to it, uh, is he, he was playing away on his violin and there's this uh, uh, swarthy gypsy sitting down in the audience just looking right at him for night <laughs> after night and uh, it started to kind of scare Grappelli. he's like well it's, what's this guy is he gonna take me out back and knife me or what and, you know that was kind of one of their first introductions um and then later on they were playing together in a uh, a band 
um, that was put together to play tea time dances and the uh, Claridge Hotel on the Champs-Elysees. And they'd play afternoons there and um, kind of play, you know, nice waltzes and dance music and that kind of thing. Um, and it was backstage in between one of the shows that uh, Grappelli had broken a string on his violin and he's putting a new string on and tuning it up and he kind of as he as he gets it in tune just check it out he plays a little jazz line that he knew from a record and Django recognized that and sort of echoed it and next thing you know they started jamming and uh, Django's brother joined in some other musicians joined in and that was kind of the uh, the creation of the band. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. Just a, a complete, almost a chance meeting. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Had, had, a, had a different musician been booked or Django had decided to go fishing that day as he often did before a gig, uh, everything could be so different. Right. Well, hey, look, for me, that is a good uh, moment to um, let's play a Django tune. So uh, I asked you earlier on about Django tunes that you'd like to play and what would your first choice be? What would you like to play first? Well, I think from that early era, there's, there's just so much great music. Uh, one of my favorites is, is Blue Drag from mm. 1935. And this is with Django's early quintet. And um, it's, uh, it's a Fletcher Allen tune. Uh, and it's a chord progression that people will recognize probably because it was uh, later picked up by Brian Setzer in the Stray Cats to create Indeed Stray it Cats. was. Indeed uh, it was. Yes, indeed. But, uh, you know, I think it's interesting because you know, Django, I think in those early days, you know, he, he began playing uh, gypsy music and then he hears jazz and so he starts playing jazz and, and he takes this American music and he kind of recreates it on guitar and makes it sound different and unique. Um, so I think that this is a great example of that. Okay, well. After that wonderful introduction, here we go with a bit of blue drag. Jangarana, here we go.
got to remember, as much as we're obsessed with Django, he's not actually that popular among in terms of numbers. It's hard to make a lot of money off a Django record, I guess. Mm. So here we go. So Stefan and Django have met by by chance. The quintet is formed, and one of the chapters of Django's life, which for me, I mean, this guy is a large in life character. He's a, a a bit of a miracle just as a person, but one of the most miraculous chapters of a miraculous story is his time in Paris under the Nazi occupation. Because here you have a person who is illiterate, disabled, a gypsy, and living in Nazi-occupied Paris, yet somehow becomes this kind of celebrity superstar beloved by the people of Paris and the occupying forces. I mean, it's unbelievable, you know? It was probably, it's hard to gauge now, but it was probably one of the peaks of his career. Um, you know, swing music at that time was like the pop music now. I mean, it was, it was the thing. It was huge. Um, Django was one of the biggest, if not the biggest, European star playing jazz. Um, and the German soldiers like jazz just as much as everyone else. Uh, the German army had a um, program that they brought, they promised all of their soldiers, all of their uh, Air Force people and so on, that they'd all get one time in Paris as rest and recovery place. And so they all came to Paris, they wanted a good time, and they went looking for Django Reinhardt to, to hear his music. Um, there's there's just the stories are kind of crazy about you know he at times he's he was making as much much money as he you know as fast as he could play his guitar he's living in an apartment on the champs elysees uh he's you know eating steaks at the point where uh, everyone else is eating turnips um you know then the question becomes is he a collaborator or not and really was was that a suspicion at the time well, I think it was and, really? and probably later um but it's like you know, I, I mean, from our position decades later, that's that's a tough question to answer. Um, you know, it's like a baker baking bread. Are they collaborators because, you know, a German soldier comes and buys the bread? Yeah, um, yeah. I, I don't know if you can really say for sure. Um, sure. And what was this? Um, so the guy that was kind of uh, the top Nazi of Paris, the guy who was kind of commissioned to look after Paris, almost like the mayor of Paris, uh, uh, Diedrich some Schultz Cohen, what was his name? Yes. Now, he was, he was in the Luftwaffe. He was an officer in the Luftwaffe. I don't think he was that high up in the Luftwaffe. He was just a, an officer. But he, he came to Paris, just, you know, a, a real jazz fan, came searching out Django. Right. famous photograph of, of this uh, Luftwaffe officer standing with, you know, Django, a gypsy, a couple black musicians playing jazz, um, a Jewish musician, as I remember, and, and here he is, and he's just, you know, thrilled to be there with these wow. great musicians. And the story um, that I heard was, um, or I read, um, was, um, you know, he was very popular among various sort of German officers, and he was asked if he'd do a tour of Germany, and he kind of thought, well, no thanks, and eventually, <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, asked a second or third time, eventually the ask becomes an order. Mm. He thinks, well, shit, I got to get out of here. So he attempts a pretty daring escape off to Switzerland, I think, with his family. And he gets caught, but he gets sent back to Paris, right? Because he bumps into this guy, right? Yeah, he, he goes down to um, the near the Swiss border and uh, he, he actually is there for a, you know, several months, meets up with fellow gypsies and starts playing music in the restaurants and you know, this is on on the border with with Switzerland. On the border, yeah, and so it's, you know he's he's pretty high profile, uh, which doesn't seem the best route for trying to escape. <laughs> but he's he tries to hire a mountain guide to take him and his his wife over the mountains into Switzerland at one point, and they get lost and it all falls apart. Then he tries uh, again to escape and uh, gets picked up by German soldiers, and they bring him. Uh, into the German headquarters, and uh, he's, you know, there, and he's sweating bullets, thinking this is the end, and the commandant comes in, and he's like, Django Reinhardt, what are you doing here? I'm a great fan of yours, uh, and so he's eventually freed and sent back to Paris. Incredible. I mean, Jesus, man, that's, that's the craziest story I've ever heard. That's nuts, and just because just this guy was a, such a big 
fan of jazz and he was like what the hell are you doing here like this guy's a legend get him back to paris unbelievable what a tough scrape um so yeah so obviously uh you were saying that it is considered by some his greatest sort of the height of his career the, the paris years but of course it wasn't too long before um he gets an invitation from duke ellington to come to america and i think they had met once before him and duke and maybe there was talk of a tour but it didn't quite happen and it was actually it was because I think that was during the war, maybe. Then it was after the war he got an invitation from Duke. Yeah, I think they had met in the in the later thirties when Duke Ellington he would, he would come to Europe and tour quite often. Right. And so they had met in Paris a couple times and played and jammed together. And 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 actually, just before we go to America, let's not forget that at the time, all these fantastic top American musicians would be going to Paris. And when they get to Paris, who they're looking for? They're looking for Django. They're looking to play with this guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, it was was Coleman Hawkins? Was he there for a bit? Oh, yeah. Coleman Hawkins was. He he was bouncing back and forth between Paris and London. I think pretty regularly. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. Mm. Amazing. So Django gets his invitation, and for him, I think it's no um, secret that Django had quite a high opinion of himself, <laughs> and <laughs> he really thought this is kind of. This is the ticket that I've been waiting for forever. And he goes to America. He's um, obviously on invitation by Duke, so he knows he's going to be kind of well-received. He's expecting to be um, received as kind of God amongst men, so much so that he doesn't even bring a guitar because he's convinced that the Luthiers are going to be falling over themselves to give him a guitar, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And he, he comes to the United States, and I think, you know, I mean, the the real jazz fans and the musicians knew who he was, but I I think most people probably didn't. The, the average okay. American didn't know at the time in the United States. The mag the jazz magazine Downbeat, you know, they'd have an annual poll of the greatest uh, musicians for each instrument, and the con the consistent winner of the of the best guitarist in the United States was Oscar Moore, right. who was the guitarist in. Um, uh, <laughs> Nat King Cole's trio. And he was a great guitarist, but he wasn't Django Reinhardt, really. Um, so he comes he to the United States and um, he, he didn't bring a guitar. He, he eventually had to buy his own guitar. He bought a, a, a Gibson and it was an electric guitar also, which is kind of interesting. Um, was, was that like roughly the first time he was playing electric on, the, on that tour in America or...? You know, there's that it's tough. It's tough to know when the first time he played electric. Um, his his during the war years, I think pickups were being created for guitars that you could add on to a guitar. There was a couple French companies, a Swiss company, and so on that were making early early pickups. And Django's brother Joseph Reinhardt had been playing with a pickup. One of the sidemen in Django's band, a guy named Marcel Bianchi had broken off from the band and was playing and recording with electric. So it's, you know, my guess is he had at least tried electric guitars before. Right. I mean, but like maybe not to the point where he was, because I always get the idea he was maybe slightly unsure about them when he got to America, right? Yeah. I think, I think that's, that's very likely. He probably hadn't performed, um, especially in big auditoriums in front in, 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 in a huge crowd. Mm. I, I guess it wasn't. Mm. But on the other hand, you know, the, the, there's recordings of Django um, in the United States that were bootlegged, um, playing with Duke Ellington uh, in Chicago, and you hear Django, and he sounds, you know, completely in control of that electric guitar. By wow, so, are those like I've never heard those bootlegs. That sounds yeah. Wonderful. There's only there's uh, is it four songs or something, which I think was Django's part of the show. Okay, and uh, they're lovely pieces. And just recently, in the past couple of years, a, a handful of recordings. Um, of Django playing at um, in New York have been found as well. Wow! And again, they're beautiful. I mean, he seems he seems really in control of the guitar. And, yeah. So like, um, he's doing the tour with Duke. It's a five-week tour, and it's kind of you know I guess the usual American tour. But at the end, there's these two big dates at Carnegie Hall, which is like that's the real deal. But the 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 the, the tour kind of running up to that. I think it's Duke with an orchestra and then Django's kind of turn is just kind of with a, a small group, like a small ensemble. Exactly. Because I think they, they wanted to bring the whole 
the whole uh, quintet, but Django didn't tell the rest of the guys. Is that right? Is that right? Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I, you know, who knows for sure what's true and, and some of that stuff. But yes, that's that's the story. Django just didn't tell people that they had all been invited. So yeah, he, he would typically play after the first, the Duke would play with his whole group, uh, his big band, uh, and then they'd have the intermission and then um, uh, Duke would come out and say, you know, I've, I've got my special guest here. It's, it's uh, Django Reinhardt and they'd play four or five songs. Uh, with a, basically a rhythm section, including usually including Duke, and mm. then the then Django would go off, and the rest of the band would come. And I think you know the story is that that the um, tour was arranged sort of at the last moment, and so at least for many of the first shows on that tour, Django didn't appear in the advertisements. That's right. he didn't appear in the programs. He was really you know a surprise guest. Yeah, and some of the reviews. I mean, you put one or two of them in the books, but the reviews are like you know. We all came to see Duke. It was great, but Jesus Christ, this Django guy comes and they've never seen anything like it. These, you know, American audiences writing for, you know, downbeat, these kind of very jazz aficionados are completely bowled over by this guy. Right, right. Yeah. And I think the other, you know, it's, it's, it's long been one of kind of the, mis- the mystery periods of Django's life, what, you know, the, the lost year or the lost months when he came to the United States because there's there was originally there was so little known about that period of his time and that's kind of what got me started really thinking i could maybe write a biography of django being a, a an american on the other side of the pond from mm. paris um what got me interested is django had written a letter home uh during that tour from minneapolis where i'm based okay and, He's, he's bragging to his family and to Stefan Grappelli about, you know, here he is this, on this grand tour and he's being given the royal treatment and, and all these things. And when I saw that, you know, here he is, it was, he came to Minneapolis around Thanksgiving time, so late November, lightly frozen cold weather here and snow on the ground. And I, you know, just the, the idea, the image of seeing Django Reinhardt in, in Minneapolis. <laughs> yeah, uh, man. I, that's kind of what got me going on on thinking I could maybe write this book. That's amazing. It must have felt a, a certain closeness, a connection, thinking this guy was in my part of the world, you know? And I think the other, the other interesting part, the, the big question of, you know, he comes to the United States and he doesn't bring his guitar. Uh, he expects the guitar companies to be lining up to get him to endorse their guitars. He um, has... Uh, hopes that he will be asked to record music. He believes, well, maybe he'll even be in movies or something because he's mm. so great. Uh, he's, you know, as you say, a uh, high opinion of himself. <laughs> yeah. And when he came to the United States, there was, um, he, he never did record. Uh, the only recordings that exist are those bootlegs. Um, and the the my theory for the reason he did, wasn't able to record is he was not a member of the American Musicians Union, so he was oh. probably not allowed on to even play on radio. Um, no he, way, really. He was pro- he was probably not allowed to record because Jan- because Duke's group did go into the studio during that that tour and and recorded some songs, and Django wasn't included in that. Because I mean, well, it's all because he wasn't part of the musicians' union. That's amazing. Because obviously, the musicians had muscle; like they had that kind of recording sort of embargo, which is the period when Dizzy and Bird were inventing bebop, right? Wow, gosh! Yeah. And th- there was no way he could have just gotten a sort of honorary membership to the. You know? I don't know, and it's and it's surprising that someone didn't say, "Hey, you know, let's." Uh, you, you, you know, it might not be legit, legit, but let's let's cut some sides. Get him on board, yeah. There's also a story, you know, part of that tour, the tour kind of started from New York, Boston, went through sort of the Midwest, um, and it went up to Toronto to play a date. And no one, it, it's, it remains hazy, but it's believed that Django did not play that one concert in Toronto, again, because he wasn't a member of a musician's union. Wow. There. So. Shit. Wow, that's so interesting. That's so interesting. So look, the, he's he's doing this tour. 
the band love him the band there's so many good quotes about the uh what's that one where i think it's is it the drummer of duke's band his <laughs> hit play and he just says fuck my britches he says <laughs> it, they just they can't get enough of him duke is in awe of him the audience is loving him gets to the end of this tour and here we go we're at the top of the mountain uh carnegie hall two nights night one goes at a hitch night two doesn't go so well hey <laughs> yeah and again you know i think i think along the way Jen, there, there are stories that Django had visions of bringing his whole family to the united states and settling here hmm. and um but you know a, along the way on this tour here he is he speaks french he speaks uh romany but he doesn't speak english really um and he's he's thrown in with these musicians and that you know they obviously found a way to communicate but you know, they, he, he seemed to have gotten lonely along the way. Hmm. Uh, homesick, maybe. The gypsy gets homesick. Um, and he's, he's stuck in New York. Well, he meets up with a French boxer, Marcel Sardin. And they go off and they, you know, share some beers, drink some wine, whatever. And then Django all of a sudden realizes, uh-oh, I'm supposed <laughs> to be on stage at Carnegie Hall. And he rushes off. He arrives late. His guitar is not in tune. He quickly tunes it up on stage. They start out playing and things, you know, are a little off kilter and eventually it comes together. But by and large, it wasn't his best night. I guess it's, um, it has to be maybe the only musician who was ever late to a gig at Carnegie Hall, right? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> so he, he comes back from America and I guess it was kind of bittersweet for him because, I mean, we look at it now and think, Jesus, he had all the plaudits, everything was good, but he was kind of wanting more from it and it, you know it didn't turn out how he wanted i guess i think that's right i think you know he had he had high expectations that this was going to be you know the next big step in his career um and then he you know he's back uh playing cabarets and shows in paris they're doing tours again and it's kind of back to the same old grind um mm. and you know i think I don't know, maybe at that period, he was at the peak of his popularity in, in Europe. I don't know. Maybe he could not have gotten larger, bigger at that time. Mm. Uh, and, and being in the United States or being settled in London or something like that would have been necessary uh, to, to, to really raise him to the next step. Yeah. Well, look, hey, let's have another tune. What do you want to listen to next, man? Well, I think jumping back a little bit to the war years and, and Duke Ellington, um, there are two tunes that he recorded during the war. I think it was 1944. And one was called Ferry and the other is Nymphaeus. And these are kind of um, a departure for him um, where he's, he's influenced less by jazz and more by like Duke Ellington's arrangements or by some of the uh, modernist uh, classical music composers in France. And he creates these two songs um, with his, a group that he, he uh, organized during the war called Django's Music. And it was basically a big band, again, modeled on Duke Ellington. Mm. And this song is, uh, this Nymphaeus, I think is a really interesting song because it's, it's kind of surreal a little bit, uh, classical style. And then all of a sudden through the arrangement comes Django's guitar. And I think it's a really interesting song. And also just shows he had vision uh, of taking this music beyond just playing, you know, swing. Man, it's a great choice. And it's a little bit like what I was saying to you at the break that the compilations tend to be his Django on a standard, his Django on a standard, but uh, his compositional talent was enormous and mm. we'll hear a bit of it now so here we go uh here we go Thank you. 
has a Morris dancing scene. Yes, it does. I've got I a couple pretty of random. Right, right, right. You you got some mates to do Morris dancing? Yeah, yeah. Afri an African American guy who's one of the the real big people in it here. That is so cool. Because like e even in England, like Morris dancing, there's not a lot of it. Like it's really rare you see it. It's kind of dying out. But it's it's so. I, I don't I don't know how we got to Minnesota, but. Anyway. But then there's a Django fan in Minnesota too. I mean, that seems kind of random. He well, they, well, that is true. There you go. There you go. It's a small world. It's a small world. So Django, he's come back from America now. And as you say, he's kind of back to the sort of bump and grind of what he was doing before, which was probably a bit less satisfying. But his playing seems to take on this new character in these years as he's really been blown away by the bebop music. And... It, was it he he heard a recording of is it salt peanuts the yeah thing? yeah there's a there's a great story how you know i mean all these jazz buffs in paris uh during the war they basically didn't hear any of the modern uh jazz music coming out of the united states and in and in the united states there was a recording ban as well mm. um and so after the war uh they start hearing this music one there's a great story of, of them gathering around. They receive a recording of um, Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie playing Salt Peanuts. And they're just, you know, blown away. Kind of back to that story of, of Django hearing Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington mm. at the start of his career. And he's just, you know, floored by this. Uh, and so he starts playing kind of a more of a, uh, of a bebop style inspired by this music. Mm. And it's really cool because, I mean, there is such a difference between and, and at this point he's playing a lot more electric these recordings there's more playing on electric guitar it's less of the kind of hot club uh format of a band there's drummers there's piano players there's sax players there's it's he was really keen to kind of push into that because of course all through his life well of course there was no gypsy jazz that wasn't a thing back yeah. then and he was just a jazz musician and of course he was really keen to push into that kind of do what the, the, the top jazz players were doing, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and I think, you know, as you say, he, he adopted this. And, and it's interesting, throughout his career, he was always kind of, you know, trying new things, trying different styles. And there's, there's not many jazz musicians who have really created a strong um, body of work in, you know, all these different styles of jazz. And Django's rather unique in that way. You know, he starts out playing the original sort of Louis Armstrong, Dixieland style. He moves into swing and he's inspired by uh, Benny Goodman to hire a, a clarinetist and a drummer. He's inspired by Duke Ellington to create this more orchestral style of jazz mm. and then bebop. And then eventually he's, he's interested in the more modern cool jazz. Mm. Yeah. You know, it reminds me of it because <clears throat> so today, 2020, if you're a gypsy jazz musician, um, you know, a lot of people wouldn't even consider that jazz. They, they, they would say it's outside the boundary of jazz. And then, you know, I might have a few mates who are jazz, they don't play gypsy jazz. And you only have to show them a few of the, maybe the later Django records and they kind of go, well, yeah, I kind of see what you mean. But I don't know, have you come across on Facebook the Gypsy Jazz Memes Facebook page? I don't know if you've... I haven't. It's, it's, it's really cool because it's just like funny memes, quite cynical memes just about gypsy jazz and stuff. And there's one, and the template is, it's this like medieval castle and there's the dudes at the drawbridge and they look over and they say, it's gypsy jazz. No, 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 they go, they go, it's jazz. And they go, open, open the gate. And then they go, no, 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 wait, it's gypsy jazz. And they go, oh, close the gate. <laughs> and then they go, no, no, wait, it's Django. And they go, open the gate a little bit. They say, you know? <laughs> like if it's Django, it's kind of cool. Right, right, right. Um, but it, but it is funny, like, um, because the standards that we play in gypsy jazz today, and you, you, you're a guitar player. I, I mean, I've seen a picture of you with a guitar. I presume that wasn't just posing. <laughs> yeah, it makes you a guitar player, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Um, in the gypsy jazz repertoire today, we tend to play kind of the more earlier hot club stuff. And I guess partly because the later stuff is kind of tricky, right? Yeah, but, I think it's very true. Yeah, but out of all of all of that, the stuff that's performed more is the earlier stuff, and it's kind of, it's kind of more beloved, you know. Even though, like on a personal level, 
um, that later stuff from Django, the improvisation in particular is just, oh, it's the business, it's otherworldly. I, I'm so into it. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's that early stuff that people really have a kind of love for, you know, that's the stuff that survived, that's the stuff that's, you know. It's, re it's really distinctive, too, from any other music. I mean, mm. it's, and, it's, and it's got, you know, its own personality and own sound, and it's, and it's just so sweet and lovely. Mm. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I mean, it carries so many other things as well, because it can be all acoustic, you can kind of play outside, it can be communal. It's, it's the only branch of jazz that has this kind of crossover in terms of how it's played with folk traditions, where you can have these big circles of... Mm -hmm of 20 mm -hmm. people all just jamming a tune together, you know? Yeah. I and I think it also, you know, it, to me, it sounds like Paris as well, for mm. some reason. Mm. Well, well, absolutely. It's, it's very Parisian but by its nature, by where it's kind of forged as well, I guess. Mm -hmm. Especially if you can get an, an old accordion in there and play a few music tunes, you're, you're absolutely loving it. So Django, he's been um, experiment with these tunes and do you know something it was about two or three weeks ago here at work across my desk came um a vinyl and it was the last recordings it was the last recordings that he did um i think maybe like just a few months before he died yeah, yeah. um and they are so good and in particular there's there's nuage on there i think there's maybe like two or three versions of nuage yeah he first records nuage and i can't remember 1940 or something and then records several different versions of mm. it over the years and yeah uh, there's a lovely one with uh kind of early one with a clarinet what takes the head and stuff but this one this later one it's got a lovely piano part uh and django takes the head and does the most interesting kind of solo it really is just different you know where mm -hmm. do you think django might have gone because of course he died so young he's 43 is that right that's correct yeah yeah, yeah. He died so young. Where do you think he might have gone? Um, after his... Hey, you never know. Maybe I mean, he might be seduced by the whole thing. Yeah. Where would he have gone? Ah, uh, I, I, I imagine he would have continued with the cool jazz. Um, you know, when when he died, he had he had been. Um, there was talk of him joining the jazz at the Philharmonic tours that went around the world and he was going to be playing with that um and he he dies and dizzy gillespie ends up taking his like right because wasn't it um oscar peterson and ray brown yeah he was going to be playing with oscar peterson Imagine I mean, that what a you team know, it seems like that would have probably broken his his career wide open in the united states mm, yeah and, and you know maybe he would have moved here at some point and continued playing yeah uh, i mean it, who knows seemed, i guess he was kind of at the cusp there of, of really make, making it big absolutely uh, and it was was it dizzy gillespie took the place that he was meant to take right exactly incredible wow yeah. that's crazy and, and of course you know is kind of in that period where dizzy gillespie really becomes a uh, you know a big huge name in jazz. It's just crazy to think, you know, like the the people he would have then been playing with. He could have been playing with Charlie Parker. He could have been playing with. Uh, he probably would have met Miles Davis. He could have met yeah. Bill Evans. I mean, who knows? And wow, it's ah, hey, there you go. Um, yeah. yeah, the things that could have been, I suppose, eh? Yes. But even so, even without all that, we're so spoiled with the riches that we have <laughs> in a short life, you know. So look, before we, um, you know, I want to talk a little bit about uh, Django's death uh, in, when he'd, he'd moved to Samoa. I want to talk a little bit about Final Years. But just before we do, I kind of want to talk a little bit, a little bit about this book. Oh, yeah. and, and really, I kind of just want to talk to you about, you know, your kind of, what gave you the drive to do all these books, all this research, all this traveling around the world? Because I mean, in this book is a hell of a story and it, it takes a lot to to go through all of this you know and, and do everything that you've done around gypsy and not only that i know you're really into loads of other stuff as well you you write for that um you write for different magazines you're quite into is it is it cars or motorbikes i don't know anything about cars or bikes but you you you've got all these different things but what is it that drives you through being so into django and collecting all this stuff like you know, I, I just, I love music and uh, the other, my other big musical love is rockabilly. 
That's uh, it. Rockabilly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that's the kind of, I, 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 when I started working on the Django, well, before I started working on the Django book, I was trying to learn to play Django's music on the yeah. guitar. Yeah. At, at that point, there was no instructional books. Um, there was no YouTube to learn from. Uh, I didn't know anyone who knew how to play any of this music. So it was the old thing of, you know, sitting there with your uh, record player and dropping the needle and trying to figure out a line. And uh, it was, it was, I remember, I remember when I finally figured out that the simple uh, beginning to minor swing and it was just like, wow, I, you know, felt this great sense of accomplishment for yeah, man. six easy notes. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, I think it was, it was just, it's, I don't know, just that fascination with these things that you were, we were talking about the gypsy jazz book. And I think the interesting thing with that one to me is there's kind of two stories there. Um, I tried to tell the story of gypsy jazz Django, but sort of going beyond that. Mm. Um, and, uh, then there's also kind of the story of, you know, me as the narrator, uh, stumbling around into uh, you know, gypsy bars in Paris, in Marseille. It's so cool. It's so cool, man. People and stuff. And, uh, you know, little little me from America kind of shaking in my boots as I, as I go interview people. But there it's, were just, there were so many great stories and so many amazing people and other great musicians that were kind of eclipsed by Django. Mm. And I wanted, you know, I really wanted to, to tell more about their music and their lives along the way. Man, it's a great story. It's a great book because we're all there and we're all reading this. And that's where we are. You know, we're all trying to learn this stuff and we're kind of learning it. You know, we feel like you going in these bars. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's really fantastic. Um, I really love it. And um, this, the, was it the, did you write, you didn't write the, you wrote, the biography before the, no, the other way around, sorry. The biography was the first book, and then the illustrated book, okay. and then the Gypsy Jazz book. I think yeah. that's, and then there, after that, there was an exhibit in Paris, and we wrote a big book that was the, sort of the exhibit uh, book as well. Uh -huh. and, and what about these days? Are you still playing? Have there, are there some people in Minnesota well, to play I with nowadays? I started, or? I started, I started telling the story of, you know, when I, I first began trying to figure out Django's music and, uh, you know, like I kind of got sort of proficient in it, not good enough, but, uh, you know, it was getting somewhere. And then I kind of got sidetracked and working on the book. And by the time I, you know, as I'm getting really in depth on the book, I have to set my guitar aside because there's only so many hours in the day. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, by the time I finished the book, I couldn't remember and was just couldn't play that music anymore. It was just so painful that I kind of switched away and was uh, at that point started playing more rockabilly music. Just cool, just man. It's, it's such a blast. Play. Do you ever do you ever get back over to Europe to you know revisit those old bars and those old haunts that you discovered? Yeah, yeah. You know, and it's it's so many of them are gone in Paris. Um, yeah. You know, it's been gentrified and and uh, yeah. sucked up by uh, modern life but uh, yeah uh, it's the same the there's, world there's over. still some of them there and there's still you know there's still there's like a whole new generation of, of young uh romany uh playing uh jazz uh in new bars and so on and so that's all really excited so you know you go to paris and there's a lot of opportunities to see the well music. hey the, the the modern paris jazz scene now is something else i mean there's some yeah. just ludicrously good players there um I'm really hoping actually to, um, you know, I, I'm in London. I can get a train to Paris. It's only about two hours. It's mm. not like the cheapest train in the world, especially if you want to go back the same day. But I'm really keen to go over and try and grab somebody and just take him down to Siena and do a podcast with him. Yeah. I've, got, I've got little uh, portable recording devices, you know. Mm -hmm. so I could say, come on, I'll, I'll buy a few drinks, play a few mm -hmm. tunes with me, and, and we'll do that. So hopefully one day. Yeah. But look, man, we're getting to about there. So just okay. before we go... I just want to say, so Django, he's finally kind of, he's in Samwa, right? He moves to Samwa. His music, is he's playing new stuff. He's kind of, um, you know, developing a sound. It's more modern than ever. But at the same time, it almost feels like it, I guess just in hindsight, it feels almost like he's kind of semi-retired just because of the way we look at it now. But he was also devoting a lot of time to painting, 
and doing more fishing and this it almost felt like there was a natural kind of slowdown almost is that right i think i think you're right i think you're right um there's you know when he when he died there are stories that um there were all sorts of different recordings of him trying out new songs and new ideas that that you know were just him playing um and these have never surfaced i don't know if disappeared if they were burned at his funeral fire or something Hmm. um but uh yeah he seemed to you know he he, i mean he had spent uh he he starts starts as a musician as a young kid he had spent his whole life playing music uh as a way of making a living it must have been grueling at a certain keeping that inspiration going would be tough yeah i mean he's he's 43 at the time so he's not a kind of young man anymore really and considering the life he lived he really wasn't a young man anymore you know and he lived a full life absolutely absolutely and so he dies at the end it was a, a heart was a heart attack or it was a heart basically a heart attack yeah and of course he would have completely refused any to go to the doctors or and he's terrified of doctors and stuff so um so that was that and of course he's Still buried in Samoa today. I imagine you've been to the festival in Samoa. You know, I've not been to the festival. No uh, way. You know, I'm, I, I love going to the gypsy bars and, you know, these old time French uh, bars and listening to the music or, or playing, you know, seeing people play the music in the gypsy encampments and stuff. The idea of going to a, to a, a big fancy jazz festival just doesn't inspire me quite as much. Well, you know, I, I I'm embarrassed. I've only been there once uh, and it was quite a few years ago. And just every year it's happened since like I'm mm. planning to go and then, oh, you know, I've run out of money or something goes wrong. I've got a gig that I can't send down or some bullshit like that. But um, but I hear from people back in the day, you know, it was a much smaller kind of, I don't know, it didn't feel like a big old festival. Whereas now, you know, some it, it's not on the island anymore. It's um, outside Fontainebleau, sort of palace mm. thing. Mm. And it feels more like a big festival because it's, you know, we all love George Benson, of course, but George Benson's playing and and there's lots of kind of world music. Again, nothing wrong with that. And, you know, jazz pop, again, nothing wrong with that. Right, right. But it's, it doesn't quite feel the same as like this kind of small, you know, this yeah. is our thing, a little gypsy jazz festival in the middle of nowhere. It feels bigger, the sponsors involved. It, yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I, 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 I think really some of the most exciting music is, is probably played in the campsites. A hundred percent. People so, playing all night long. A hundred percent. Because I mean, like you go down to Samaro on, on the Saturday night mm. and you can bump into some of the best players in the world. And they're just there. And you're just getting a concert from the best guitar players in the world for free. You just get to hang out. Yeah. Um, I, I know some people who go now and they don't buy a ticket for the festival. They just go to the campsite and have a blast. Well, that, but that's what you should do, man. You should just go down to the campsite. And... Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. You know, some of the best, some, some of the most fun I've had is going down to the far south of France to Les Le Saint-Marie de la Mer, which okay. is a small town where gypsies go every year at the end of May for a pilgrimage. It's like the religious kind of the religious uh, thing, pilgrimage. yeah. And, um, you know, there's I don't know, tens of, oh, thousands of gypsy encampments there. Wow. And uh, the music there is just amazing. And, and the interesting mix of, of jazz and flamenco and some of the, the gypsy rumba, because that's sort of gypsy king country. And is, so, you know, is, is this, is, is, sorry, is, is this the one that's on the film Lacho Drom? There's a little bit. Yeah. Yep, yep. Yeah. There. Mm-hmm. yeah. Wow. So, you know, I mean, that's a, a incredible, incredible. Yeah. Story. And that's, I, you know, there are tourists going there, like myself, uh, to see it, but it's it's largely really a gypsy event. So. Yeah. So that's the real deal, you think? Hi, it's just a different deal. It's uh, well put, well done, well done. <laughs> so look, man, um, I have had an absolute blast. This has been so yeah, much fun. So much. I, I wish I could do it forever. Um, really cool to talk to you. Again, um, anybody who's interested in Django, Gypsy Jazz, these books, they're really a must. They are such a great sort of an accompaniment to your sort of gypsy jazz journey. I'm going to put links in descriptions and all the rest. Again, this one's my favorite because <laughs> it's got all these cool pictures in it. You know, it, it, it's like having a bit of memorabilia just with the book because there's just so much cool stuff and it, it, it's got loads of text in it too, but it's so fun. You could just spend hours and hours just looking at all the cool things. 
Um, but there you go. So make sure you get a hold of them. Michael Mann, we're going to play one more tune, and that'll be us. Uh, what do you fancy, mate? Well, you know, one that I think is really interesting is from after he came back from uh, the United States, and he's inspired by bebop. He's on tour. They go to Brussels and uh, as part of the tour. And, and the story is that they basically run out of money. The band is kind of stranded in Brussels. So they arrange a recording session. Yeah, this is 1947. They, re they arrange a recording uh, session to make some money so they can get home. And uh, Django uh, is inspired by bebops, and he's got a handful of new songs that he's playing. And he doesn't have an electric guitar at this point, but they record, the story goes, with a microphone right next to the sound hole of the guitar. And he's playing uh, where they kind of get this, this intense driving sound from that microphone that almost feeds back, uh, almost overdrives. And so it sounds like an electric, but it was actually just his acoustic guitar trying to mimic an electric guitar. And the song uh, that I, that I, one of my favorites of his is called Porto Cabello. Um, yeah, yeah. And it's it's an interesting song because it kind of starts out slow and then it just he just goes for it. Jeez, and it, to it's, me, it's some of his most exciting. Yeah, I, it's uh, I first heard this tune. Um, there's an Angela De Bar album called Impromptu. And it's on that, okay. I remember. It, it's got this kind of almost, not mournful, but kind of kind of down, kind of these drone things. And fuck me, it goes like the clappers <laughs> after that. Michael, yeah, mate, yeah, thanks exactly. a million. This has been so much fun. Um, we'll do another one in the future. If you want to come back on, it'd be so cool to talk to you again. And sure. maybe I'll see you in Europe sometime. Yeah, thanks man. so much. Absolute pleasure. Good. Okay, here we go. Porto Cabello. All right. Pleasure. Okay, here we go. Porto Cabello. All right. Mm -hmm. 